Welcome to Christ Community Church. We're so glad to see you here. My name's Greg, I'm one of the pastors here. If you are a guest and this is your first or second time here, we wanna get to know you, wanna give you a chance to get to know us, and there's a couple ways you can do that. We have a thing called a connection card, and they have them out there, the welcome desk, and if you would stop by, we've got a wonderful person out there who loves people and would like to help you out. You can fill that out, and they have a gift right there for you for doing so if you're online. You just look around, you're gonna see a connection button, you push it, it'll take you to a little form, you can fill it out, push another button, and it sends it right to us. And so we're glad that you are here. Um, I have a, a lot of things to kind of run by you today. I'm a little bit nervous about it. I always get nervous when I have the opportunity to speak. Um, and about four weeks ago, we, uh, a lot of us here, we celebrated and welcomed in the new year. And for some of us, we might have made some New Year's resolutions. And I'm always fascinated with New Year's resolutions. And again, I found myself online just checking out uh, what this is and if it really works. Um, three facts regarding New Year's resolutions. Number one, 95% of all New Year resolutions are fitness-related. Okay. Number two, of all New Year resolutions made, 80% will fail and most by February 1st. And then third, only 16% of people are able to follow through and succeed in completing their goal. Now, why would people even try? Because really when you think about it, the reason people set New Year's resolutions is simply this. They want a better and healthier life. They want a better and healthier life. But what if, what if it was a conversation that could most change and improve your life? I'll say that again. What if it's a conversation that could change and improve your life? Let me tell you a story. The year was 1983, 40 years ago now. And a legendary, a legendary business conversation was taking place. There had been five long months of ongoing conversation between one of the most successful corporate CEOs in the country, a guy by the name of John Scully of Pepsi, and a young 20-something who owned an upstart business. And this is their picture. The 20-something's name, Steve Jobs, and of course the company, Apple. And as the story goes, John and Steve had met and they liked each other and they began to dialogue about what it might be like to work together in some fashion. And so the bottom line was Steve was wanting John to consider coming to work with him at Apple. So they would go on long walks, they did long walks, they would go out to eat dinner, they would meet at the end of the day and they had this conversation. And John was trying to figure out why a personal computer company would think he'd be interested in being a part of something he cared little about. And secondly, John had no interest in leaving Pepsi. Under his leadership, Pepsi had experienced tremendous success. Scully loved his company, he loved the people he worked for, and it even looked like the situation he was in at Pepsi was gonna get better. After five months of continual dialogue and interaction, they kind of came to a stalemate. So John sets up what he thought would be a final meeting with Steve, and they meet at the office, and John says, listen, I've really enjoyed our conversations, I really like you, I've thought about it a lot, but I've decided I'm not leaving Pepsi, and I'm not coming to Apple. 
And it was at this point that there was silence, and then Steve Jobs kind of shook his head, and then he leaned in very close to John Scully. In fact, he leaned in uncomfortably close. You know what that's like when somebody gets up in your grill and evades your personal space? That's what was happening here. And then Steve Jobs deliberately and slowly says to John these words. John, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? A month later, Scully resigns from Pepsi, becomes Apple's new CEO. And for the next 10 years, John Scully took Apple from $500 million in annual revenue to over $8 billion in annual revenue. For those of you who are techie, that was indeed a conversation that changed the world. Conversations have tremendous ability to change, to impact, and to improve lives. I would suggest this is true for many of you in this room. Probably true for all of us in one way or another. It's been very true for me. And one of the most impactful conversations, I was trying to think back, what was the, one of the most impactful conversations when I was a kid? The first time was probably my sophomore year, late in my sophomore year of high school. I was walking down the hall between classes, and the basketball, the head basketball coach of our high school, pulls me aside and into an empty room and says to me these words, Greg, I think with some hard work, you could be a pretty good basketball player. Well, first of all, <laughs> I was surprised because I didn't think he knew my name. I was kind of a wallflower kid. I had, didn't have very much going, for, going on for me. Didn't have a, very much friends at that time. And the other thing that really caught me off guard <laughs> was because at that time I was a wrestler. And... I was making the choice in junior high, you could play both basketball and wrestle back then, and wrestling was my better sport. And that day I just ordered, I had just ordered my wrestling shoes. But the coach got my attention. And he worked with me for really hard for over a year. And it had a huge impact on my life. And the thing I remember isn't what came out of that conversation. It was the conversation itself where somebody, an adult, not my parents, actually believed I had potential to do something. It was the first time somebody said something positive in my life about what I might be able to do. Fast forward about a year and a half. My dad calls me into his office. He sits me down at the end of my junior year, which was a really good year for me. And he sits me down in the office and he says to me that uh, we're moving. You're going to be going to a new school. You're going to be going to a new school, a bigger school that's four and a half, five hours from us on your, sen your senior year. That was a hard move, I thought, at that time. I, as you would expect, I wasn't too excited about it. But we moved. And within just two or three weeks, it was obvious to me that this was a great move for me. I got a great summer job that summer. I, I loved it. I met a bunch of great guys who became terrific friends. I got to play basketball with about nine of those seniors. Um, it was just wonderful. More importantly, 
Shortly after I moved there, one of those friends sat me down and we had this great conversation. He shared with me that God loved me and had a wonderful plan for my life. And for the next 30 to 40 minutes, Boyd shared the gospel with me and it was then and there for the very first time that it all, all the dots kind of came together. And Jesus became very real for me at that time. And it was a significant conversation. Had, again, a huge impact on my life. Impact on my life. I had a wonderful senior year. And because of a coach who thought I should quit wrestling and go to play basketball, because of a group of guys that took me in, I got to go to college for free at a private school. I had another great summer. And then I went off to college, and there I met this amazing and beautiful young lady. We had met briefly in the, in the summer, just talked maybe five, ten minutes. And that night was the second night of freshman orientation. And we both ended up on opposite sides of the net, the volleyball net, and, and she stunk at volleyball. But we went out I said to her across the net, I says, hey, you want to go out to get something to eat tonight? She said, yeah. And we went out. And we sat in a booth at Pizza Hut. And we talked and talked and talked until they turned out the lights and told us to go away. And just 10 months later, we got married. Had a massive impact on my life, on our life. Four wonderful kids, 17 grandkids. And from the first date till now, it's been a lifelong conversation. And my, I am the better for her, for her love and for her friendship. I know firsthand that conversations can change a person's life. They certainly changed mine. There's this guy in the Bible who had a life-changing conversation, and he wasn't expecting it. He didn't see it coming. But after a conversation with Jesus, everything in his life was flipped upside down and he was forever changed. A couple months ago or so, I talked about him with you a, bit, a little bit before, but this is part two of that message. And his name was Zacchaeus, and we read his story in Luke chapter 19. And Zacchaeus meets Jesus when Jesus comes to his hometown of Jericho. Jericho was a very significant city at that time. It was a border town, which means that they had custom stations where taxes could be collected from foreigners. Jericho was a wealthy city with a thriving economy. So there are lots of taxes to be collected there. Luke 19.2 says that Zacchaeus was wealthy and a very important tax collector. He was a chief tax collector, which meant he had a large staff of tax collectors who worked under him. How it worked was this. Rome didn't know the Jewish culture or their people, and they didn't care. And they wanted to get taxes from them, but they didn't know the ins and outs. They needed people who knew people so they could be sure to get their taxes from this group of people, the Jews. But the thing was, they would get these taxes that were set up, collect them, but then they had this opportunity to take a little bit under the table, to charge more than was expected. And as a result, they stole from their own people and became wealthy for doing so. And as you would expect, they were despised and they were hated. Now, Zacchaeus was not only one 
of them. He was the poster child of them. He was the worst of them, and he was public enemy number one. Why? First of all, he was taking money from his own people. And number two, he stood on the top of this pyramid that existed. Everybody who was a part of his team, his staff, had to give Zacchaeus a piece of their action. And as a result, Zacchaeus became very, very rich very, very quickly. Now, before we throw Zacchaeus under the bus or under the donkey, as it were, imagine growing up uh, uh, under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. If you were a Jew, chances are you were poor. You were pushed around. You didn't have any opportunities. You didn't get any breaks. As a kid growing up, your family would struggle to afford the most basic of necessities. There weren't many opportunities for a Jewish guy to make his way. Then one day, one day this opportunity opens up that could change everything for you, that could maybe be a blessing for your family. We forget this, but the truth is that the people in the Bible like Zacchaeus weren't any different than you and I. They were real people with real needs trying to make a different, trying to make their way, trying to make a decent living. And like any of us, they had dreams and ambitions, they had struggles and fears, just ordinary people who wanted a chance for a better life for themselves and for their families and loved ones. But we have this tendency to, to make them a villain and understanding all the things that they're going through. Let me ask you if you've been Zacchaeus and this opportunity opened up for you to get a job of a tax collector, what would you do? Well, you would have jumped at the chance. So Jesus comes to Jericho. Zacchaeus had heard about Jesus. Everybody knew about Jesus. He was front page news, center stage. He gave sight to the blind, healing for the sick. He had great things to say. He even raised somebody from the dead. So verse three tells us that Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. Why? Here's what, here's what I think. I think that the life Zacchaeus was living out brought him no pleasure. He was empty. And he was thinking that there had to be more to life than he was experiencing. He'd made his way to the top. He'd taken that ladder and put it on the wall of success, up against the wall of success. And, and it was shallow and hollow. I don't know exactly what was going on in his heart, but my guess is that the Holy Spirit made sure that Zacchaeus was at the right place at the right time so that he could meet Jesus. Luke tells us these words in in his narrative there in chapter 19, there were many others who wanted to see Jesus too, and Zacchaeus was too short to see above the crowd, so he ran to a place where he knew Jesus would come. Well, how did he know that Jesus would come that way? Uh, it was his neighborhood. It was his city. So he climbed a sycamore tree so he could see him. And when Jesus came to where Zacchaeus was, he looked up and he saw him in the tree. And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. I must stay at your house today. Jesus invites himself over for lunch. 
Zacchaeus hurriedly comes down, and he was unbelievably happy to have Jesus in his house. But then verse 7, everyone saw this, and they began to complain. Look at the kind of man Jesus is staying with. Zacchaeus is a sinner. Maybe this, this really is what Jesus is all about. This, he's not all that he's meant to be or created to be or not presenting himself as he is. And to do that, to go in the house of a sinner, somebody who was an outcast who had turned on his own people, was unacceptable. It was unthinkable. It went against status quo. And I want you to know there at verse 7, the, the shock is going through the crowd. But don't miss this. Jesus could care less. He didn't give it a second thought. Jesus has never been one to fall for status quo. But here's what's interesting to me about this whole story. Right here. And I hadn't seen it until just a few days ago. We don't know what happens after Jesus says we're going to your house. Luke doesn't give us any, any real details at all. In fact, when I went to, to uh, uh, some Bible references to, to BibleGateway.com, I looked up probably 15 to 20 verses, and some of the verses seem to indicate that once they started walking to Zacchaeus' house, this conversation took place. Another one says after the dinner, then this conversation takes place. And some say they didn't have dinner, they just sat and talked. It kind of gives that kind of a feel to it. But we don't know what the conversation was. But we do know <laughs> that in that house, something took place, something crazy, something significant took place in that house with Zacchaeus and Jesus in it. I was thinking about this, and it kind of dawned on me. I thought, uh, I don't know how many of you like going, we like going to musicals, my wife and I, and there's usually an act one and an act two. You ever been to a theater? Theatric, uh, theater kind of thing, program, or maybe to a, a musical, and they have act one, and then at the end of act one, well, what happens? The music kind of comes in, and the curtain closes, and, and, and then the lights come on, and it's what? Intermission, okay? And the thing I want you to understand here is act one ends with verse seven, and when the curtain closes, people are kind of ticked. Jesus said, he's not all, he, we, he, oh yeah, he's a good teacher and stuff, but he is spending time with a sinner. And act one ends with that phrase, he's in the house of a sinner. And the lights come on and it's intermission. And people are chatting. People are upset. This isn't right. Zacchaeus is not a good man. But the crazy thing is, Something happens in intermission that we're not privy to. A conversation that took place we're not privy to. So when, when the lights flicker and you head back to your seat and the music starts and the, the lights begin to go up and the curtains are open, Act 2 begins and it picks up in verse 8. But the big story is in the intermission. And in verse 2, don't miss this, Zac it says this in verse 8. Zacchaeus stood up and said, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody, I'll pay back four times the amount. 
And people are like, what? That looks like Zacchaeus. That sounds like Zacchaeus, but that ain't Zacchaeus. Something has changed. That can't be Zacchaeus. I came across this quote that I thought was so, so, so good. Because I want you to understand, something has significantly changed in Zacchaeus' life. I don't know if it was at the table or the living room or the walk to the house, but he is not the same. N.T. Wright says this, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus. And then this is what N.T. Wright says. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually a part of the drama which has him as the central character. So good. Because what happens in that house, at the table, or on the walk, or after the meal, is simply this, Zacchaeus has changed. He is not the same. And it's not that he just started to believe in Jesus. No, this was a genuine, spot-on conversion experience. He is not the same. When, and he draws a line in the sand. He says, I, I, I'm not the same. I'm, I'm going to give half to what I have to the poor. I'm going to give back four times what I stole from anybody. I, that, why? Because that, that doesn't matter anymore. It re reoriented his entire life, including his resources. He went from a, say, a taker to a giver, to not caring, to being generous. New Testament scholar Craig Keener says this, in ancient accounts of discipleship, a radical response with possessions was a certain sign of newly acquired devotion to the teacher. His whole life was this opportunity to get whatever he wanted, to take care of maybe his family. But most times what happens is if you're, you had a son or a daughter who went and worked for Rome, you were out of the family. You were alone. He had everything that he could ever dream of. He would never thought as a kid growing up that he would get the wealth and, and have the, the comfort and, and the power and the wealth and prestige that he had in the position that he was in before Jesus. But now it's not about getting what he wants. It's about being who he is because he has a brand new identity. He is a disciple of Christ. So what, is, what does that mean? In preparing to share this with you, I went to a lot of different resources, um, but the one resource that turned my head is a guy by the name of Dave Ferguson, who's a pastor in Chicago, at a church called the Yellow, the Yellow Box, because it's an, it's an ugly colored church. And um, I've been there, and I've been, I went there for, to, to meet with a couple of their staff uh, the first year I was here. And I, I got to, to meet a lot of these people. But here's the scoop. Ferguson has a unique angle and take for what has just happened, and I love what he does with this text. He offers some new language for what has happened right now in Zacchaeus' life. And what he says is simply this, that Zacchaeus has gone from a you life to a you plus life. A you life to a you, a you plus life. 
And he says, this is two categorically different ways to live. And what's the difference between you and a U plus life? He says, and as I share this with you, I want you to keep this, the story of Zacchaeus and the change he's experienced and have it right there. A U life is just that. It's all about you. It's about me and uh, what I can get and what I want, okay? It's all about you. And so you're driven to want the things that you desire. You're driven to want the things that are going to make you feel good about yourself. You're driven to want to be in charge, to have this, to be all that in a bag of chips. And that's how Zacchaeus lived before he met Jesus. He had a you life. It was about him. The bummer about a you life is a lot of times it's disconnected. Why? Because you're not relationally connected so much because you've got these other things you want for yourself. And the truth is that most people, most people in the world live a you life. And most people in Jesus' day lived a you life. It was definitely true of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus has taken this ladder, this ladder of success, the ladder, he puts it up against the wall of success, and he's thinking, if I can climb the ladder and make my way and get what I want, then I'll be happy and fulfilled. But it it didn't deliver. It didn't deliver the goods. It left him empty, alone, and in a word, lost. And then Jesus comes along, and again, we... We are not privy to the conversation. A couple of my resources that I tap into regularly, especially when I'm looking at a text I'm not really familiar with, they, they made assumptions. Well, obviously, Jesus taught him the four uh, spiritual laws, which is you're a sinner and you're toast. God loves you, but he can't hug you because you're lost. But God sent Jesus in order to go to the cross to die for your sin so that you can embrace him, and then what? You could live a life of faith. And I'm not saying that maybe that conversation didn't take place, but this, several of the people were saying, well, that's, that's the spirit, that's the four spiritual laws. And Jesus wouldn't leave those out. We don't know, all right? But what we do know is this. Zacchaeus has a different, different life. Somewhere in this dialogue, Zacchaeus realized, I don't have to live the way I'm living. I can have a different life. And it came because of the conversation that he had with Jesus. And Jesus says this different kind of life is what's called a you plus life. And I love that. And one of the verses, the verse that he really phrases in is one of my favorite verses. And it says this. Jesus says, I came so that you can have a real eternal life, more and better life than you ever dreamed of. And what Jesus is saying is simply this. Yes, there is you. And I gave you life, and you have the opportunity to do whatever you want with it. What some theologians call common grace. But there's something better out there for you. It's a you life. It's a fully flourishing version of who I designed and created you to be. And Jesus is saying, that's what I want for you. That's what I came to give you, a you plus life. So the question is, how, how does that work? How do you experience this fully flourishing life by doing what Zacchaeus did, by putting your faith in Christ and becoming a disciple? 
it's critical to understand what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Being a disciple of Jesus involves more than just believing in him. Folks, for 17 years of my life, I knew a lot about Jesus. I could do pretty good, hold my own in Bible trivia and the Jesus pop quiz, and I understood uh, both Christmas and Easter, and because of proxy, my dad being a pastor, I learned a lot of stories. And I knew Jesus from a distance. That's not, that's not what happened to Zacchaeus, that he learned about Jesus. He became a disciple of Jesus. There's a lot of people who believe in Jesus, and me included, until one day, a friend and I had this conversation, and he laid out how I could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus said. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Anyone who loves me, this is John 14, 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. In that one statement, and there are others just like it, Jesus clarifies what a disciple is and what a disciple is not. So let's be clear. A disciple is not only someone who believes in Jesus. A disciple is one who obeys Jesus. It's really that simple. So here's our working definition. A disciple is someone who hears from God and does what he says. A disciple is someone who hears from God and does what he says. And that's the choice that Zacchaeus made. That's the choice that changed his life. When you're a disciple, you want to obey Jesus, so you listen in to hear what he says. And then when you hear what he says, you do what he says. And after his conversation with Jesus, his actions demonstrate quite clearly that he had become a disciple. He was all in. He pushed all the chips to the middle of the table. And that's what's really important. Obedience is key to living a life of a disciple. And that's sometimes where we kind of lose it a little bit, including myself. We tend to miss it sometimes. Obedience is the key in experiencing this full and flourishing life, this you plus life. When New Testament writers talk about putting your faith in Jesus, they use this Greek word. I'm probably not going to get it right, and my bosses over here will probably clarify it. Um, afterwards, but it's called pistis. And it's a word that we often translate as faith. And Sometimes when we think of faith, again, we think of merely just believing. We think of merely intellectual assent, of acknowledging, oh, that, that's true. And we might even say again, I believe that God exists, or I have faith that, that Jesus was raised from the dead. But that's historical stuff, informational stuff, not necessarily relational. And sometimes when we don't get it right and when we're lost, we kind of grab at straws, you know what I'm saying? And there's a difference between grabbing at straws and dropping your anchor to be a disciple. This word, pistis, has a much broader meaning. It means words like this, commitment and confidence and faithfulness and pledged loyalty. The best word, the best word for it that brings all those together in a really good way is this word, allegiance. Saying yes to Jesus means to give him your allegiance. It's much more than just believing, it's obeying. And we see that, we see that throughout the New Testament. We, we see that in Zacchaeus' story. We see it with Peter, we see it with John and Mary Magdalene and the woman at the well, and the, the apostle Paul, just to name a handful. 
When you step back and you look at those people and you hear the story, each of those had a conversation with Jesus and as a result, they devoted their lives to obeying him. Fast forward, the same, the same opportunity is available to each one of us today. It's the opportunity to leave behind what's not working for us, which most of the time is the you life. And instead of living the, the you life, you can live the you plus life as a disciple. And the life of discipleship is really quite simple. Not easy, definitely not easy, but it's simple. And you go back to what is a disciple? A disciple is someone who hears from God and does what he says. It's sticking to that job description. It's doing the work of a disciple. It's obeying, it's listening, and it's obeying. A disciple is constantly asking, God, what do you want me to do? And best they can, they do it. By the way, just a caveat here. This is not about trying harder. That's all covered by grace. He loves you more than you could hope for. He never loves you less. He loves you no matter what, that's a done deal. It's not about trying harder. It's about dropping your anchor at the feet of Jesus and saying, I'm all in. I want to follow you. I want to obey you. I believe a conversation can change your life. I, I believe that Jesus wants to have a conversation with you. One of the things I want to do so badly today is I want to have just two two chairs facing each other. Because that's how Jesus operates. It's deep and it's personal. It's intimate. You ever have that friend that you, you see them and you, you, you might not have seen them for two or three years and you sit down at that, that and you have this instant, instant conversation. Let me ask this question. Have you had that conversation? And how about this question? <clears throat> When's the last time you and Jesus had a conversation? even as a disciple. Because that's where the, the power and the strength and the hope and the joy is found in the conversation. And Jesus asks you, do you really want to keep doing life the way you've been doing it or do you want to come with me and change the world? And change the world. Let's pray. Father, I feel even as I pray right now that sometimes when you have this opportunity to just share some thoughts from the word that sometimes it just seems the words the words don't come out right and uh, I am thankful for so many of these conversations I've had that impacted my life for a coach who thought I had potential for a friend who knew I needed to know Jesus for a wife and a conversation at the Pizza Hut that changed everything. And Father, we, we understand so much about what the Bible has to say, but discipleship means we're all in. We're not holding back. We've crossed the line and we've changed and we want to hear from you and then we want to do what you say. Help us to do that. 
Because that's where the action is, that's where the life is, that's where the joy is. Help us to be salt and light where you've placed us and help us to take the initiative to have conversations with those people too who don't know you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So here's the deal. Have a great week. If you would like some prayer, there's gonna be somebody up here who would love to pray with you. And I'm leaving you, not telling you what to do with what I shared. That's the hard work, I guess, of really leaning in and saying, okay, God, what can I get for this? What can I do with what I just learned? Have a great weekend.